0: Welcome to Getting Shit Done in Healthcare, where we interview high-performing people who are getting things done, affecting change, and leading the evolution of care. We interview healthcare workers, entrepreneurs, investors, administrators, to get their perspectives, strategies, tactics, and wisdom so you too can affect positive change. Follow us on Twitter at GSDIH or visit our website at gsdih.com, where we have links to our guests and backgrounds, or follow Karen Horgan or myself, David Eigen, on LinkedIn, and please always feel free to provide value-added feedback. Welcome to the next edition of Getting Shit Done in Healthcare, where we have uh, David Ash and Raina Merchant uh, from Pan Medicine, and we have Karen Horgan, my co-host, who is in a dual role today, as they all work together on a very interesting consulting firm named Val Health, And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Karen to introduce our guests uh, and take it from there.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of our podcast. Um, as David mentioned, today we're joined by Dr. David Ash and Dr. Raina Merchant, two of my fellow coworkers, workers colleagues, uh, experts in the field of getting things done in healthcare. And so I'll ask you both to introduce yourself. Uh, Reina, Dr.
2: Merchant, why don't we start with you? Sure. Thank you so much, Karen and David. And I'm really excited for our discussion uh, over this next short while. My name is Reina Merchant. I'm an associate professor of emergency medicine. And I'm also the associate vice president for digital health for Penn Medicine. And I direct the Center for Digital Health.
1: All quite impressive. And I will say we are about a week into uh,
2: vaccination.
1: And Arena, let me know she's been a guinea pig for us and got her vaccine. So we're excited to see that uh, she's doing well. Two thumbs up.
2: So excited. <laughs> it represents hope and turning the corner on this uh, COVID journey. So thanks, Karen. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Ash,
3: introduce yourself. Sure. Well, thanks, Karen and David. I'm happy to be here. I have not yet been vaccinated, but eagerly Awaiting my turn to get the vaccine, uh, you know these are these are this is the turning the corner moment. As Rena mentioned, anyway, I'm David Ash. I'm a general internist, a professor of medicine at uh, the Perelman School of Medicine and the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. And at Penn, I direct our Systems Innovation Center, uh, focusing on healthcare innovation, largely within our own healthcare delivery system. It's an exciting time to be engaged in innovation. Actually, it's always an exciting time to be engaged in innovation, but I will tell you that uh, since we're speaking to you at the turn of the year of 2020, and we all hope 2021 is gonna be better, this has been an exciting time, uh, scary time actually, to be engaged in innovation and healthcare.
1: So one of the things I like about both of you, many things personally, back when we could actually share a meal together, um, Mm -hmm. but I like that you have a lot of credentials, a lot of letters after your name, but you both actually focus on doing things and not just thinking. And that's a lot of what we wanna talk about today. So, so David, I'm gonna start with you because I, I've known you a bit longer and help us understand a bit of what you've been doing the past, I don't wanna put the number of years because I don't wanna age you, but particularly the past years around behavioral science and understanding how to nudge people, um, LDI what you did and, and then leading up to the Innovation Center. Yeah, well,
3: thanks Karen. I mean, uh, you know. Uh, I can probably define myself a lot of ways, but but mostly I'm a behavioral scientist. Mostly I do behavioral economics work, and and I think I, I think the answer to your question is so embedded in what behavioral economics is. You know, the the classic view, the classic economic views, are built around people acting very rationally, and they're you know most of our traditional economic incentives and approaches assume that people act in their own best interest all the time. And, and this is about getting things done here. And I think what I like about behavioral economics in that context is that it moves past the idea of economics with the traditional rational person. And, and instead of focusing on how people ought to act, behavioral economics fo- focuses on how people actually act. So it's really about being much more realistic and in the real world and not just thinking about stuff, but thinking about how to do stuff and and help people change the behaviors they need to change to move forward in their lives. And that's through behavioral economics generally, but I focus in the areas of health, of course, helping people make decisions if they're patients, making decisions towards better healthcare choices, or if they're people, and we all are, making choices towards better health decisions. And and frankly, even clinicians and healthcare managers can be, uh, can be helped to be, make better decisions. So I think it really is very practical. It really is about getting things done and not just thinking about things.
1: So one of the early pieces that I remember reading yours was um, 5,000 waking hours, which I thought was a really interesting. One of the, David's really known for his isms, and we could probably spend an entire podcast talking about the Ash-isms.
3: Yeah, let's, uh, just, let's spend the entire podcast.
1: <laughs> well, one of the stories I'm hoping you can tell, and I'm gonna butcher this because I can't remember it completely, but what's was about three or four years ago, you went in front of the Senate Subcommittee on Wellness Programs. And you gave the example of what an economist versus a behavioral economist would think of a forty two a day. Can, can you share that with this group? Because it, I think it'll really resonate and help people understand how to get things done and how important it is to use certain words.
3: Yeah. So I remember that now. And so for, that was a great experience getting to testify in front of the Senate. Um, uh, I only liked about half the senators. Um, but
1: We're not going to ask which And
3: so, uh, you know, uh, I had the chance to tell a story about a study that a colleague of Raina's and mine, Mitesh Patel, led. And Mitesh is a totally brilliant guy and had, had been doing a whole bunch of studies. And uh, we participated in this study, but really he should get the credit. A whole bunch of studies designed to try to get people, sedentary people, to walk more. And, you know, we all, we've all heard the, the term, we should all try to walk 10,000 steps and in this study, what Matesh did was he he tried to get um, overweight and obese employees at the University of Pennsylvania, where we work, to walk at least seven thousand steps a day, and uh, and he used the accelerometer in, in in people's smartphones to to use as the pedometer because it's actually quite accurate. And I'm going to simplify the study a bit, but I think uh, I'll, I'll give the the gist here, which is that uh, the The participants were randomized, so this is a randomized control trial. And one group, by random allocation, were just told whether or not they made the 7,000-step goal each day. You're supposed to walk at least 7,000 steps each day. Another group got a financial incentive, so they got paid $1.40 for every day that they walked 7,000 steps. That's a good thing. Those people would be motivated to walk more. It's not a lot of money, but it's a little bit of money and there's a prize and, you know, it could be sort of fun. And then the third group got the same $1. forty a day, but it was framed as a loss instead of as a gain. Right. So $1.40 a day is the same as $42 a month. And what Matesh did was he gave each of these participants $42 at the beginning of, beginning of each month in a virtual account that they could see. And he took away... $1.40 for every day they didn't walk seven thousand steps. So Karen, to your question exactly, an economist, a classical economist would say there's no difference there, right? For every day you walk seven thousand steps, you're a dollar forty richer. But a behavioral economist like me would say, no, those are quite different. Because in one case, you have the opportunity to gain a dollar forty, in the other case, you have the opportunity to not lose a dollar forty. And and we, the brain thinks about those things asymmetrically, and that's exactly what we found out. Those who received a dollar forty for walking seven thousand steps were no more likely to meet their seven thousand step goal than the people in the control arm who didn't get an incentive at all. But the people who had the loss framed incentive, where you they could lose a dollar forty, they they were fifty percent more likely to meet their goal. I mean, it, this does not make economic sense, but it makes Okay. psychological sense, because losses loom larger than gains. They're just much more motivating. So I, I think that was like such a great example. And uh, Matex was brilliant to have designed this study that way.
0: So, so can I ask just one question on statistics? Because I'm, I'm the uh, product of a man who had the author of How to Live with Statistics as his uh, father. Um, he was a student there at Dartmouth. Um, and it, when you say 50% more, is it that you know 20 out of 100 did it without anything but 30 out of 100 did if they lost or was it half versus none you know how did how did that work how, did, how does that work
3: so david that's a great point and and statistics can like as you said they can be very misleading so i don't mean to be misleading at all um, what it, what this meant was that 50% more of the people in the in that arm walked at least 7,000 steps. So it's actually a fairly clean result because we weren't, we didn't give credit, extra credit, if you walked you know, 8,000 steps or 9,000 steps. You just had to get over the 7,000 step threshold and 50% more people did that. So in that respect, it's a kind of easy to understand result, but I probably didn't explain it crisply the first time around, so thanks for
1: that. It's quite impressive because it shows that some of the ways you get things done in healthcare You don't throw more money at the problem. We really need to focus on how we frame it to take advantage of people's decision biases and and what they do or don't react to from loss aversion to social proof. And we'll get into that more later.
3: Yeah, Um,
1: I want to to bring you in and tell tell us a bit
2: about how you first met
1: David and how the two of you work together.
2: Uh, Thanks, Karen. Um, I've known David for Maybe thirteen years since I since I came to Penn as a fellow before. Blissful
3: years. She meant to say blissful years.
2: last thirteen years of my life. That's what I meant to say. What, from that moment when I met David. No, but he's just been this incredible um, mentor, and um, how he thinks about the world, and how he thinks about getting things done, and I like that he has that combination of both incredibly rigorous science paired with, um, you know, the actual doing, the actual getting things done, the actual action. And so he makes science in that regard pretty exciting. And I think myself and other mentors like Mitesh um, really have sort of strived to do work that we think is important for the end user, be it the community or whoever that, that, that health system, whoever the group is, and doing work that's gonna be meaningful. I was going to ask a question because I, Karen, you mentioned the 5,000 hours and that is a, an Ashism, but, um, you know, David, you talked about this concept of automated hovering and I think it nicely connects with the example that you just gave, um, around Mitesh using, uh, you know, um, trackers for seeing how people are doing regards to their fitness. And I wonder if you could comment a little bit about how, Um, you know, people are thinking today about devices that track things and their ability to monitor. It often feels like off the shelf ready. This is something that we should all be doing. Why aren't we tracking everything? But I think that your work has been very um, sort of deliberate in trying to understand more about when did devices and when does technology really help us with addressing problems. So maybe you could share what automated hovering is and make that connection with the study you just gave because it, it really sort of helped me think more about sort of devices and, and tracking
3: yeah well i'm happy to respond but if we don't turn this around soon and start letting reina uh share her wisdom then uh you know it's going to be the podcast we want it to be uh, but i i do think the automated hovering concept was really a valuable one and this was something that uh our, our colleague, Kevin Volpe, and I developed actually along with the, the CEO of our health system at the time, Ralph Muller, who really helped us think about the term hovering. And, and the general idea was, as we were thinking about the the patients we were taking care of at Penn Medicine, by and large, the ones who were having the most trouble had somewhat complicated lives. And, um, and the, the technology that was around for remote monitoring. You know, our people were starting to use Fitbits and other kinds of pedometers. They were, they were using the, the GPS in their phone to track their jogging. They were taking pictures of their food. They were doing all of these kind of quantified self activities. And those people who were doing that didn't look anything like our patients. Our patients were having a hard time getting, the, getting fruits and vegetables. They were having a hard time thinking about how exercise could ever be part of their life or having a hard time remembering to take their medication, or even thinking that taking their medication was as important as many of the other struggles in their life. And those quantified sulfurs were just not a good model for the patients we worried about most. And um, And as we thought about this, we realized that, you know, most of the most of the time we don't see these patients. They're like, even though they have chronic illnesses, they might be in front of us only a couple of hours a year. And, and, and if you do the math, there's about 5,000 waking hours a year when they're not in front of us. And that's when most of their health outcomes are unfolding. And we had no vision into that. And it wasn't like they were gonna suddenly wear Fitbits and start taking pictures of their food. Their lives were too complicated and the quantified sulfurs were not good models.
1: David, I think that's a really important point that us on the phone are not our target market. And it's just, you know, giving technology alone isn't going to solve the problem for people who have lifestyle uh, conditions, who are in a food desert, who don't have transportation. That's not going to solve the problem.
3: Right, and and that that kind of, um, you know, it's a kind of design principle, but an open-mindedness. It is a kind of inclusiveness to recognize that most of the people we meet are not like us, and we need to to have a a much broader view of what people want and who people are. And that sense of inclusiveness, I think, is good socially, and it's incredibly important.
2: Yeah, so,
1: Rena, so turning this around, talking about, you know, how getting things done and particularly uh, challenges, I know you and I have talked a bit about the CARE program.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Can you describe what that is and lessons learned from it?
2: Sure. So this is a program, again, wanting to give credit to, to those who are who are leading that. This is a a, a program which has emerged out of uh, the Center for Digital Health and the Center for Healthcare Innovation, led by Dr. Kat Lee, Lauren Hahn, Mike Teche, and the um, chair of plastic surgery, um, uh, Dr. Sorletti. And so really what the team did was they were interested in trying to better manage patients after having um, breast reconstructive surgery um, secondary to cancer. And so what they did was they spent a lot of time doing contextual inquiry and talking to patients and trying to understand what their needs were (laughs) after having the surgery. And what they learned from this patient population is that after they had a complicated surgery, They had up to five visits where they would have to come back, take off work, leave home, drive to Penn Medicine, maneuver through traffic to get back to their visit where they would see their surgeon who would say, you know, know, evaluate them, talk to them, and then send them back home. And they realized that there was this potential missed opportunity where they weren't maximizing the time of of the end users, the patients, by having them come back for these multiple visits post-surgery. So they did a lot of different work to actually sort of better facilitate the relationship with the patient and the surgeon, empower the patients where they were at home by giving them more kind of agency and managing, their post-op, and managing themselves post-op and sort of saving, saving them time that they otherwise needed for recovery. And so one of the impressive things from this project was that they partnered with Home Health to be able to go to the patient's home, and to help them with managing, so patients after the surgery have lots of drains in place. So they had the home health nurses go help the patients manage their drains. They developed a texting platform using Way to Health, which David may talk about a little bit later, that allowed the patients to provide information about how their drain output was was being managed, and then they had someone come and evaluate them at home. And they were able to text with patients and see how they were doing, answer questions. Um, which freed up time for the nurses that were in the hospital to take care of other patients and oftentimes much sicker patients. And so they were able to, through this comprehensive package, reduce the visits from five visits to one visit. And in reducing from five visits to one visit, they improved patient satisfaction, they improved the patient experience, and they allowed the surgeon, who Dr. Soletti is like world-renowned, he's you know one of the best breast surgeons in the country and the world. And he was able to then see more new patients because he wasn't doing these unnecessary additional visits from before. And sort of the icing on the cake was this team brilliantly partnered with um, organizations that provide um, what I'll call uh, sort of icing on the cake for these patients. So they had these specially designed bras, these specially designed robes, these things that really made the patient feel like they were being cared for by Penn Medicine remotely without actually having to come to Penn Medicine. And I think that's where you know healthcare is moving is what can we do remotely? I think we've all learned a lot in COVID that we don't have to provide healthcare in the hospital. What this care program did was it created this comprehensive package of services that patients could do at home prevented them from needing to be in the hospital with the same high quality, without more um, sort of ER visits, more complications. They had the same outcomes with those patients, but they had fewer visits. So
1: this is fascinating. About- you threw the whole experience on its head. Uh, you, you increased patient satisfaction. You expanded reach. You lowered costs. So a question here is, in many systems, would they have conflicts of uh, fee-for-service versus Managed care, like, were, were there any barriers to getting this done that our listeners could learn from, of like, what, were, what did you have to overcome?
2: I think the main barrier is what we hear often, and it's called the, um, that's not how we do things barrier. <laughs> so the, you try yeah. something once and people say, well, well you know, we, we can't possibly tax patients because what if somebody sent... Uh, information which you know wasn't appropriate to be sending back and forth so we work with legal we work with IS we work with IT and we find out that people are already sending these patients they're texting the residents all hours of the day to look at wounds to look at post-op care. so why don't we just do that in a secure environment so it turns out that was the way we always did things but we could do things better or people said there's no way that patients can manage their drains at home. Like they, you just don't understand. It's very complicated. Again, that's not how we do things, Like that's just, that's the way it's always been done and we don't do it that way. But they found that you could really, you know, with a little bit of education, you could talk to patients, you can understand what the barriers are and you can create really simple ways for them to be able to do the things at home that don't require them to go to the hospital. And even more so now, when we don't want patients to have unnecessary exposure to COVID in the hospital, programs like this allow patients to just get the highest level of care at home and feel empowered that they can take care of themselves. With these, you know, combination of uh, both the swag, the cool robes, the uh, you know, uh, you know, enhanced bras that really are more comfortable post top with the texting service so they know they have access to their provider. And really, they don't have to come into the hospital
3: for that. You know, it's funny. I was, um, I think it was another element, in, really in the spirit of getting things done, which is a lot of getting things done involves some kind of automation. Like that is, that's what's going to take some of the cost out of the system. That's what's going to, to move the front door to where the patients are. That's, what, that's where most people are comfortable with in other aspects of their lives that aren't about healthcare, whether it's banking or entertainment. But, but when you've got patients who are getting breast reconstruction after cancer, those visits were probably providing a fair amount of emotional support because, you know, uh, you know at, at a time that it was needed. And so I think one of the parts of getting things done here that was, that Raina alluded to was that in removing four out of the five visits, you had to find some way to add back the emotional and human touch. And uh, that, the, the bathrobes and the, uh, and the, the straps that you would put on the, the shoulder straps in your car so that it was there was padding against your chest. All of those things that made you feel special were also ways to add some of the emotion back. And I think if we think about getting things done in healthcare, and a lot of that moving forward is going to involve automation. And the successful automation is going to need to understand those human and emotional elements that we've always wanted from our healthcare encounters. People people complain about will robots be suddenly take being taken care of me uh, instead of my kind and friendly doctor. Well well maybe, but maybe they'll be kind and friendly robots.
2: I mean one of the things you reminded me of, David, was also it, it's worth it's worth sharing that what was communicated in some of that emotional support. But this is really, really brilliant. This was Kathleen and Lauren Hahn. They packaged the um postdoc sort of recovery gift for these patients. in this beautiful pink and gold wrapping in this like, and then they designed these cards that your surgeon signed. And it was like this rose gold sort of calligraphy, beautiful. It was like a treat. It was like a delight to open it. So they created this moment of delight. It's the type of package you would want to get. And they made it so It it communicated, we know you've just been through something, you know, incredibly emotional, incredibly difficult. You still are, you know, worried. You have a lot of questions. You're still worried about your future. And you get this amazing gift, which communicates sort of care on the part of the surgeon through this, like, so thoughtfully created things that you really need. If you think about when you leave the hospital, you usually get, like, a hospital bag that says patient belongings on it. It has some like, you know, plastic things that you want to just cover up and you don't want anyone to see that you have these things. It has a million pieces of paper, you know, with some instructions that nobody's going to read. Like, you know, and you replace that with this beautiful pink and gold box with a bow with a note from your surgeon. And you know that someone's going to be texting you instead of you having to go to the stack of papers. And connect with you to answer your questions sort of throughout the time of your recovery. And so all those things really sort of just communicated humanness and and care.
1: I think the humanness is a really important element to how you get things done. If we recognize that it's not a system, it's not an electronic health record number, these are people. And the moment you appeal to the humanness of it, that is what nudges people to, to take that path.
0: Yeah, I, I, I would like to have. There's another uh, company, and, and uh, the founders with whom we've recently interviewed as well. But at that full disclosure, I'm an investor in Conversa Health, which I, I don't know if you've come across it, but um, their main development partner was Northwell, and now they're in UCSF and University Hospitals in Cleveland, and they're in about 30 different systems. Um, but they're a, you I know, mean, originally when I first looked at it four years ago, the chatbot, automated chatbot, and you know, so in terms of how you drive adoption, the, the providers like yourself to adopt it. And so it's good for the patient. But one of the things I thought interesting about Converso was, you, you know, it's, there, there's no natural language. You, you get options, you tap. So it's all text-based. But um, what they found was, let's say, by example, in radiation oncology, when in the male population at Northwell, at a couple of their hospitals where they piloted it, they thought that it took three to four weeks before uh, nausea set in. Because if you ask a 50, 60, 70 year old man, how are you feeling? Uh, you know, when you do get through by phone, I'm fine. And what they found was when they actually gave you know four options on on a text, they started getting the truth. And so from anywhere from admissions, readmissions, complications, and then the the flip side that I'm really getting at was that the, the the doctors and nurses in their respective groups started getting a much better sense of how their patients were doing. So the stress level for the practitioner came down dramatically, and they really knew the triage that became a way of life or how it was practiced. So I'm curious if there's any other flip side of that from like, not just the patient side, but you know, how, how that really permeates and how fast you got either this CARES program to be adopted, et cetera, like any, any other insight.
3: Well maybe to maybe to echo what you said, David. So my mother's not alive anymore, but when she was alive, you know, I'm I'm her son, the internist, and so she would occasionally acknowledge that and talk to me about her health and 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 then she'd have a visit with the doctor. And I would say, well, did you did you tell your doctor about that? You know, and she said, no, I don't want to bother her. And and uh, you know, it was like it was like the punchline of some kind of bad joke. And um, but I think people really do reveal reveal a bunch through technology to their clinicians in ways that now has allowed clinicians to learn a lot more about side effects and and actually in, in this sort of paradox, learn more about their patients because. They can connect with them through more media channels, just like you know the, you know we're all separated because of the pandemic and we're all on Zoom and and the like. But, but we are learning more about each other in different ways through that. Uh, and I th- I think there, uh, Raina, you have you probably have a story of a really related to radiation oncology and 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 the the like intervisit sort of chats of patients who are getting radiation therapy uh, that you might want to. Talk about that project because I think it speaks very much to what David Eigen was was saying.
2: Yeah, David, I'm glad you, you brought that example up. And so this is another project. The other one was called Care. This one was called On Care. Um, I don't know if we we enlisted David Ash to help us come up with these names, but uh, this one was called On Care. And um, this is a project led by Andrea and um, Amr and uh, Elisa Klinger. And uh, they basically worked to, the, the problem here is that patients who have been diagnosed with cancer and are undergoing radiation treatment needed to come to the hospital every single day over several weeks to get care. And so yet there were these predictable moments when patients would begin to develop toxicity from the radiation. And so we thought initially maybe a texting intervention isn't helpful because people are there every single day, so they have this regular touch point. But what we learned is that even though they had that regular touch point, they would develop symptoms at night, they would develop symptoms over the weekend, they would develop symptoms at these points when they weren't interacting with their care provider. And so here another um, sort of remote monitoring, more automated covering over these patients was really helpful we were able to, in asking them these patient-reported outcomes that they would usually complete in surveys, we converted that to texting. We were able to go back and forth with patients and identify toxicities even three days before their next visit in person. And so again, here, sort of as the example that you gave, David, that ability to really have multiple touch points with patients along their, their journey really allowed us to identify symptoms earlier and in some cases prevent Um, you know, an unplanned hospital visit, which is really important in this patient population. I will also say that one of the things that we learn through automation is that people get really comfortable with with the texting. And maybe you were getting at this, David, but again, that people, you're asking them every day about their symptoms. And then we noticed that people would start saying, well, how are you doing? And, oh, let me tell you about my weekend or, you know, they just sort of got comfortable and they felt like someone was checking in and they they had this level. They weren't sure if it was a bot on the other end or person, but they got really comfortable. And we felt like we really had a relationship with these people who you think they're here every day. They're seeing someone Yet they really appreciated that that additional touch they got from the regular text check ins.
1: So it's almost like we're going back a hundred years in healthcare to the humanness and the house calls and the person that cares for you, because somewhere in between then and now we went to cold, thin robes of the seven minutes with a doctor where they may or may not know your name and be very tactical to now we're recognizing that to get things done, we have to bring the humanness in.
0: See, Keep her on. Human. Keep her on. We have a guess. <laughs> we have a guess. <laughs> What's your name?
2: (laughs) Say
0: hi, Emerson. You can't can't be shy.
2: Hi. 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 Emerson. I
1: love it. Emerson. We're very proud of your mom. She's talking about wonderful things.
3: (laughs) She's pretty (laughs) proud, too.
1: The humanness. (laughs) The humanness. (laughs) That's right. (laughs)
2: Okay.
1: So I think we want to talk. When we started the podcast, we mentioned that um, David Ash and Raina are involved with myself in a company called Val Health. So I'm going to turn it over to David Eigan. But um, David Ash, why don't you first talk about Val Health and how the, how it got started, which was even before I came around?
3: Yeah, it's amazing that there was a history before you, Karen. But um,
2: I, I, it I, I so can't believe better.
3: it got so much better. Well, it's right. not. It's so. Um, you know, uh, Kevin Volt has been a longtime colleague of both of me and also of Raina, A, a total. Totally brilliant economist who I would say has really really led the use of behavioral economics in the health and healthcare sphere and 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 really helped people understand how to put how to use principles of behavioral economics toward health issues. And he and I had been at Penn doing a lot of frankly a lot of work in this area, typically just sort of you know NIH funded research studies that, that aim to improve people's health behaviors. And the phone started to ring a lot and and it was the, these companies that were trying to, you know, basically get some advice on how they could improve the health of their employees if they were, saw themselves as large employers or they were healthcare companies and wanted to improve the health of their patients. And they thought we were onto something. We weren't doing any advertising. And we thought to ourselves, you know what, we should probably go into this business in part because um, there seemed to be demand for it, but also because Honestly, we were sort of at a stage in our careers where it was going to be both fun and much, and sort of an impactful and expanding to do things that were outside of the laboratories that we were using and into the real world, where real patients and real people and real employees and real companies work. Um, and so we decided to set up a little firm uh, that we call Val Health, and our uh, we uh, a friend of mine, Jim Patton, became our first sort of corporate. Uh, director of that and, and jim did a great job but eventually we grew so much that we needed to bring in some real muscle and uh and we we found karen through uh you know, through kevin's wife's sister's roommate i think that's the story from from when you were an undergrad at, at wharton karen and uh we had a dinner uh, so jim kevin and i had dinner with karen and uh we were smitten i would say and uh and karen joined us as our ceo and as taken the firm to new heights. It's been totally great.
1: Yeah, that, that was 10 years ago. I, I feel like that I can remember exactly when we, we were all sitting very close together, it seems now, when, uh, in person at dinner in Philly. And uh, I, I said this before to David Eigen, and he didn't like this. It was kind of like a Reese's peanut butter cup. It was like chocolate <laughs> peanut butter. And it was exactly perfect because I brought the consulting and business background and even built a product at some point. And we brought that together with your scientific knowledge of behavioral economics and That suddenly became Val Health. It was fantastic, and it has been for over ten years now.
0: I was just saying that I'm more of a Kit Kat guy than a Reese's (laughs) Peanut Butter.
3: (laughs) That analogy (laughs) too
0: doesn't help your health if you eat a lot of them. But uh, no,
1: anything in moderation is good.
0: So, so what I'm, what I'm interested in, in ferreting out here is, and and I'll go back to something. This is uh, almost 20 years ago and I'm in someone's office in New York city, a group of us. And, um, it was the first run that Cory Booker made of being mayor of Newark. And it was the beginning of a friendship for all of us with him. And he was talking about all the things he wanted to do. And the guy who was hosting it, I'll I'll get names out for today. Um, he He ran out and got his checkbook and came back in and he said, "I like leverage now in his investment style at times he would use leverage, but what he was referring to was operating leverage, and that if you could get someone with great policies in a position of power, then you could effectuate great change. He didn't have to donate a lot of money the money was already there in the budgets and that and that the belief was as as he did that, that Cory would go on to do great things with the city of of Newark and then and then beyond and and that has borne fruit. So here, what I like is the idea that you can teach people your clients that have large quantities of people for whose lives they're responsible for that you can effectuate great change. Right, it's one thing to have an idea; it's another thing to get people to adopt them and then make sure they're implemented. And that's really where I, I, I want to ask you to. Talk about, um, I, I don't know whether you disclose client names, but some of the bigger, maybe even at scale programs you've done and how you've been able to impact change.
1: So, so here's a great example. Going back to David testifying before the Senate and you know, losses are more powerful than gains and the words being important. Um, as ValHealth, we are very confidential with our clients, but there are a few we're allowed to mention, so any that I mention are all approved. Uh, so we worked at Sutter Health a couple years ago And they wanted their patients to use a portal to schedule appointments. And we also wanted to help people close their gaps in care, particularly women who were overdue for their pap smears. Uh, Women's health, very important. I'll say that personally. And so we worked, we didn't have a whole lot of touch points with them. They basically said, you can send out three emails. And they have hundreds of thousands of email addresses. So we didn't know if people need to schedule appointments. We knew if they were overdue and we sent out emails And first of all, we got 4.9 times as many people to use the portal to schedule appointments than uh, pick up the phone and call. But more importantly, we got 2.6 times as many women to go in for their pap smears. And within 90 days, there was something like um, uh, 5,000 women found out about abnormal pap smears. And so when you talk about scale and leverage and just changing the words in an email that is sent, and suddenly over 5,000 women instantly are aware of uh, this may or may not be cancer, I'm gonna find out early stage, like that is going to scale and leverage. And we've been able to repeat that in other clients with like New Cross the Shield of Louisiana, doubled the rate of people are in diabetes management programs, all about how do you get to large numbers without expanding on costs and just using some of the, the foibles that we all have.
3: You know, Karen, embedded in some of the things you said are, are some of the like sort of other answers to David's question, you know, uh, from earlier in this um, discussion, you know, you, you just mentioned a bunch of statistics, and we know the we know we know how much we improved it because we were being empirical and scientific about it. And and I would say, and I think this is interesting in terms of getting things done. You know, some of our clients just want to know the answer and they just want to implement it, right. and yep. that's fine. Um, but it's even better when they recognize that their own day to day processes are the laboratory through which they can get better and better and getting things done and learning how to do it even better are not usually incompatible. And, and like our favorite thing to do is to actually use the consulting engagement to do a trial in context so that the, the, the next year, the year after, we can be even better at it. And um, I love it when clients will offer that up. I mean, I'm perfectly happy to give advice about, here's what we know from our experience. And if, if you could only do one thing, do this. But it's so much better when you can also say, and, and here's how you as an organization can learn how to get things done and we can help you along the way.
1: I think that's really important because in healthcare, so many clients, they, they're just like, I don't have the ability capacity to A, B test. I, I just what you're doing is going to be better. So I'm just going to roll it out. Uh, but as a learning organization and advancing healthcare overall, for those clients then that can AB, like with Sutter Health, we AB tested, we CD tested, and now we can actually help expand the whole healthcare ecosystem because we've got this massive laboratory that we're learning from, so it's great.
0: How how do the systems iterate? I mean, you know, on on an average across clients, I mean, that's, that's Silicon Valley defined, right? I remember, was it last year or the year before, Facebook tried over fifty thousand different uh, skins, right? And it mattered what area of the country. It mattered different, yeah, and they figured it out. How how not just innovative, but you know, iteration can be the biggest part of innovation. How and especially since COVID, how much more are your clients willing to to do that? Because because I would think smaller changes are more palatable and easier to start. Um. To build
1: them. So it's like clients are two extremes. They're either I'm going to test and we can do like a bunch of iterations or they're like, I I have no ability to do anything other than get this out. They're, they're strapped. Like, you know, Raina said earlier, uh, you know, one of the biggest barriers to get anything done is this is how we've always done it. So when we go into a payer, you know, this is how they've always done it. And so if we have an innovative person within the organization who's trying to push a, a, a something uphill and they're like, Yo, I, I can't get anyone testing, but I can tweak the call center scripts. I can change the content in a direct mail. I can change the journey that someone experiences. But you, testing it isn't something I can necessarily do. You know, then you've got course, the digital health companies. They're like, bring it on. Will you create eight different scenarios for me and let me test? David, go on.
3: Well, I was going to say when Raina told that great story about the plastic surgeons and the breast reconstruction, you know, the the thing that was wrong about the way she told it, it's not her fault, but like it, it looked like it was all like she told the, the final story, but it was so many steps. Maybe rainy you want to speak to that. So many steps to get to that punchline, a bunch of missteps, Frank, things that don't go right. And it's so much, you know, the, it, it, it's never as easy as it looks when you see the finished product and, and to get things done, some of the, you have to have some tolerance for, Trying things out and recognizing you might not know the right first step, but you really can't begin to learn stuff until you start doing it. And 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 like getting things done is partly about just starting, uh, uh, that journey and recognizing that you might be making some some you know left or right turns along the way. Randy, right? you might want to chime in with some of those lessons or yeah, I was going to say three
2: of the things that, that that stand out along the way is one as I mentioned. Contextual Inquiry, which I learned from working with David and the Innovation Center, where there are a team of designers who actually go in and spend a lot of time just kind of talking to people. And I think that 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 step can't be underscored enough of how important it is. You could come up with something shiny new, but if people don't want it or you're not solving for the right problem, it seems really obvious. But I think when that step is missed, um, you really end up with a product that doesn't meet the, the needs, or it doesn't quite fit. So I think the contextual inquiry is really important and doing that over and over again and talking to lots of people. So if you just talk to the doctors, um, you miss out on the perspective of the nurses or the providers who are going to actually potentially be doing the texting. If you don't talk to the patients, then you don't understand maybe they don't want you texting them at 8 p.m. or, or 10 p.m. Or maybe they only wanted, or in some cases, people said, you know, I don't really do that texting thing, but I'll give you my, my brother's number or my husband's number my partner and they're the person that actually will be able to tell you, you know, how I'm doing. And so if you just relied on the we found that a couple of times, so like why is this person not texting us back? Because we had the wrong person, because we didn't ask people. And so that was sort of a an important uh, an important lesson is being sure that you're asking asking the right people and then also engaging these sort of like very interdisciplinary teams. If you, you know, are just working with one provider but not really thinking across the spectrum. The home health was a was a really Um, important lesson. And then I think the final thing is, so it's the contextual inquiry talking working with interdisciplinary teams, and then finally being willing to just sort of like fail and fail often. And so, you know, the, I told the story of care, but really I should have said this was care 9.0, because there were so many iterations that happened before that, that didn't quite get that sort of final product. And so- That was my next question. (laughs)
0: That was my next question was how long did it take? How many iterations did it have? Where Whose idea was that and was care in the first place?
2: So um, this came from one of the plastic surgeons, one of the residents, Mike Teshi, who said, you know, I feel like patients are texting me, you know, a lot of pictures that are going to my phone and I feel like I don't have a way to get it back into the chart. In a way that you know lets the whole care team know what the treatment plan is, and so that was the initial problem, that patients are texting residents, and residents want everybody else to you know to know what they're responding, so that it can be part of the the care team, and that was sort of interesting, but we thought I don't think that really is the the interesting part here, and so Kat Lee said let's dig a little bit deeper. We said, what's wrong with you know?" going through the five whys? Well, what's wrong with patients texting? What's wrong with the information not going in? And then we got to, well, people are, are texting you the images, but the bigger problem is is that when you talk to patients, they're like, I have to keep coming back in. And you know, I don't know if I need to be coming back in. And you talk to a surgeon and they say, there's a backlog of people who need to see me. And I can't sleep at night because I know there's all these women with breast cancer who I need to get in to see, but. The, the schedule is full so we kind of map all of that and then ended up with trying to address you know very specific solutions but it was not a it was not a we started <laughs> that it started from there it went through at least nine plus iterations
0: and have 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 you have has Penn pen shared this with other systems has anyone else adopted it
2: so there's a couple different ways that this specific project has sort of scaled so, one is that other surgical services are looking to do similar processes that are specific to the types of surgery that they provide. And so it is already scaled out of plastics to both other types of plastic surgery, but other sorts of things that fit within the realm of general surgery. Another way that this is scaled is that we also try to make sure that the information is shared broadly so that other health systems can begin to adopt this. And so Kat and others um, have a paper accepted at a very high impact journal, which describes both the, how they got it done and some of the failures along the way. And that'll be coming out in the new year. And then outside of surgery, there are other specialties, which are now trying to adapt different components of this program. So it's continuing to, you know, you know, you, you test it in one area, you try to build, try to build and expand out to get, you know, so what are the elements that really made a difference?
3: You know, in some, in some cases, people can pick up the, those journals and read about them and decide to implement them. And that's always the easiest. Sometimes they need places like Val Health to help them along in, in thinking through their particular context. And so coming back to that particular story, one of the reasons why we wanted to set up a firm was to frankly, you know, grease those kids or make it easier for, for people to take some of these innovations and put them into practice
1: so uh, along those lines, what David said, that we put them into practice, something not nearly as powerful as what you just described. Maria. And I can't even try and compare it to the care program. But one of our clients is in the chronic kidney disease space, and they have a new diagnostic to try and prevent crashes to ESRD. So not quite as powerful, but still really important. And to get adoption, it fundamentally cha- has to. there needs to be fundamental provider change. The way that providers practice. They don't currently have a diagnostic, they currently use some measures that give a current state, but they don't do a predictive state at the rate at which someone will crash. And so a lot of what we do is go through that journey you described of why would a physician use this or not? Would a patient act based on the answers? How does this affect the economics? And so we start with that discovery phase of what is the journey, and then ultimately we go through bringing behavioral economics into the solution. How do you make the right path the easy path? Can you just change the defaults? Like you said, like, this is just how we practice now. Women get a gift bag bag when they leave. You know, how do you change the EMR to automatically order tests? How do you get physicians to be comfortable talking about something they weren't comfortable about before because otherwise they're not going to adopt? And so what you, that arena is perfectly aligned with how you go through what the behaviors are, what the hurdles are to engagement. And then how do you bring in words, journeys, all that to nudge behavior change? And David, I know you've done some great work there like around hypertension and other areas as well.
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, to David Eigen's point, I mean, these issues of scale are often the same kind of program across systems, or they are parallel or kindred program where you move from something that might be about reconstructive surgery and you change it to something that's about colorectal surgery, or you think about something completely different like hypertension and making that, you know, the the right path, the easy path, hypertension, high blood pressure is, the, frankly, the leading killer on the planet, um, you know, more than tobacco right now. And uh, it's so tantalizingly close to being solved because it's actually, you know, if you were to look at it on paper, it seems like an easy problem to solve. But that problem is broken down into behavioral steps and each one people trip over. And uh, we, we've done a bunch of programs to try to smooth that along and make that path easy one fundamentally behavior is is the final step on each of these pathways right here we are recording this when we are at the end of 2020 and even if you've got a great vaccine or even if you have a great drug it still takes a doctor to prescribe it and a patient to take it right There's, so that that final that last mile is human behavior and we need to not only build the molecules and not only design the vaccines, we need to design the behavioral strategies that will turn those into something that actually gets something done.
1: So, so David, great example there. Uh, at Val Health, we do a lot of work in digital condition management programs, whether they are diabetes, hypertension, mental health, which is obviously very critical and important right now during uh, COVID and the pandemic. Um, And someday people are going to be listening to this podcast and be like, oh, the pandemic, that was so far behind us. I look forward to that day. Um, But we do a lot on digital health adoption because there are fantastic tools out there. And if you build it, you know what? They aren't going to come. And we break it down. Oftentimes those programs, they try and get people all in. They talk about "Well, the coach is going to do this, what it's going to look like when you're full in. And we bring the behavioral economics of create quick wins, break it down step by step. Let's start with enrollment. How do you solve a problem that people have today? And we talked about this. You had different pa- problems, whether it was the uh, surgeon, whether it was the patient. So, if we're going after consumers, what is the problem they have today? In diabetes, it could be they need free strips. In um, hypertension, it might be meds need to be titrated, or they need to get their meds filled that they have today. And then, how do you frame that, bringing in the words, but more importantly, how do you make the right path the easy path? And we've done this with um, many digital health companies where we've gotten anywhere from 35% to 200% increase in enrollment. And I use those numbers widely because it's, we've already talked statistics. It depends where you're starting from, um, your percent increases. Because sometimes like there are times we've got eight times increase, but I tend to not use those numbers because they sound fake. But when you're starting with such a low number, yeah, we can get you an eight times increase. And so you know, we're very candid about where we're starting from. If you're starting from 2% or 40% is a very different impact that we're gonna have. And so we, we know that literally changing the words and making it simple to get what you need done, will get a 35% to 200% increase in digital health. And that's really critical because a lot of the things we've talked today about are remote and automation and humanness and, and all of that. And we need to get people started on a, on a journey. So that way they get more involved and start taking care of themselves outside the doctor's office. Versus if we just try and throw them all in, they're likely, they'll shut down. Like we all know when there's too much going on or you, you're just overwhelmed, you just don't take that first step. And so a lot of what we do is we break down step by step. And I encourage anyone listening to this podcast to say, you know, how do I get people to take one step? And David mentioned it earlier, you can't learn until you start doing something. Well, you can't get healthier until you start doing something. And so, let's not say you have to lose a hundred pounds. Let's start with five. Let's start with step by step and uh, get that going.
3: Any David? Well, I didn't. I don't. I didn't realize that on this screen you could see that I needed to lose a hundred pounds. I thought you could just see the top part of me. But
1: <laughs> well, I've got a, a fake. This the <laughs> That's
3: a filter.
1: And I think that's what's interesting and what I really like about working with Reina and David is they they, at Penn Medicine uh, Innovation Center, you guys, you try a lot of different things and you'll throw people at the problem. You'll figure out what works, what doesn't work. You'll have nine iterations and you don't give up. And what we can do to take that into the real world is learn from your successes and learn from your failures and help people not repeat them because that's really important. Oftentimes we don't publish what fails. And I don't know about you, but yeah, I fail. Things don't work, and if you don't learn from those failures, that that's not well done. And so, a lot going on there. Yeah,
3: I mean, that's what I. That's why I like the idea of when we work with clients to, to work alongside of, in in a kind of an empirical discovery part. Because I think most, some of our clients, I think, are they. You miss an opportunity if you don't see your existing customer base as the laboratory. By which you can serve the next customer and and uh you know i i think the the, the most forward-looking firms do that and and mm-hmm. I think we've, uh, Raina has done that in the innovation center in the center for digital health that she directs to to always see each each patient encounter as an opportunity to make the next patient encounter better and uh, i think that can be true across industries and that's part of it's, it's not just getting things done for today, but but setting them up so you can get them done better in the future.
0: And I, I do have one last question on this topic, but how how long does it take? Someone comes to you with a problem or, you know, I know you're starting to branch off into digital health companies that want to penetrate some of your other you know, customers, payers, providers. What is that cycle like? What does it take to, to get something done?
1: And that is a good question. So we focus on getting actionable results now. And so from the time we start a project with a client, they can have an impact in the field between 60 and 180 days. Uh, Along that, we also help set them up for like how they can have a bigger impact in the future. So there's kind of like near term impact and longer term impact, but we really pride ourselves on what can you have done right now to get stuff done this year, as opposed to we're gonna give you a big strategy that's gonna sit on a hard drive somewhere that no one's ever gonna look at two years from now. That, that would be a failure of a project.
3: But but just to answer, another way to answer David Igen's question is, I think it totally depends on how much how much of a burning platform you feel like you're standing on and how much pressure, because usually it's, they're just time constraints, people are busy. They, they come to us in, in the context of a whole bunch of other priorities. And the reason I know that is because when the pandemic really exploded in the in the U.S. mid-March. And Raina and I and a bunch of us started on a, on a whole bunch of initiatives for Penn Medicine. We were standing up programs within 10 days. And, and it was because everything was aligned. Every, we had a common enemy. We were unified. There was no more infighting. Um, uh, Everything else stopped, so we were focused. And, and I, I think that is fortunately not, not the usual case. I mean, you know, the usual case is that people have a whole bunch of things that they're doing. So I actually think this can be very fast if you have the ability to focus, and that is really gonna depend on circumstances. But the pandemic totally accelerated a whole bunch of things because we had a, a singular focus, a singular enemy, and you know, and this sort of common cause.
2: I think that's
0: well said. And do you think that's created a long term opening for change to continue?
2: Well I think one of the things that that stands out is that I I feel like when the pandemic happened, it's not something that we were preparing for. But yet because we had so many projects that we've done in place using remote technologies that we weren't starting from scratch. And so I think for anything in the future, we aren't starting from scratch. We've actually you know, continue to iterate and hopefully gotten better at things that are digital, things that are remote, things that are personalized. Um, so it's not starting starting from scratch.
1: That's well said. So uh, I know we're, we're about at time. So Dr. Uh, Merchant, Dr. Ash, I want to thank you for joining us. It was quite an engaging conversation here. We can nudge consumers, patients, providers all through the system. And if our listeners take anything away from today, it's please try something different. Be innovative, but recognize that you want to make the right path the easy path. Recognize that the words you use matter and that there is a science, uh, behavioral science, behavioral economics that truly can drive change and encourage you to learn more and make it all happen.
0: So thank you all. I would say be gracefully impatient. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you all for taking the time today. Well, thank you, David.
3: And thank you, Karen. And thank you, Raina. Thank you, David, David, and Karen.